I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 1 as we get into a a study this year of the book of Romans. Man, what a better way to start the year out than getting into the Word and studying the Word together. So, um, you know, my prayers, we as we tackle this book, uh, this New Testament letter that we're starting today is that we all grow closer to the Lord. And, um, you know, we've entitled this series, The Gospel According to Romans. It really is about the gospel and about God's grace. That's what the gospel's about. Um, I think the Apostle Peter said it well in 2 Peter 3. He says he prays for the people he's writing to and he prays that they might grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Man, what a great prayer for us to pray for ourselves, that we would grow in grace and grow in knowledge of who he is. Um, So I want to take us back in time a little bit. Uh, I was on the evening of May 24th, 1738. There was a discouraged missionary who said he very unwillingly went to um, a, a meeting, a religious meeting in London. And there, when he was there, a, a miracle happened and he wrote this in his journal. About a quarter before nine, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. That missionary was John Wesley. And just a few months before that, he had written this in his uh, journal. I went to America to, to convert those without Christ, but who shall convert me? So <clears throat> Wesley that evening at Aldersgate Street, <clears throat> where that meeting was, Uh, had his question answered. Uh, It was God who led him uh, to faith in Christ, God's grace. And what was being read that night was the uh, preface to the book of Romans by Martin Luther, who had also been impacted greatly by the book of Romans. And what excites me about studying this epistle of Paul is that it's still transforming lives today. Um, Not just Martin Luther and John Wesley, but many others. The one scripture that stood out to Martin Luther was uh, that salvation comes by grace was Romans 1.17 that says the just shall live by faith. So the Protestant Reformation Uh, The Wesleyan revival that happened throughout England all took place because of God using the book of Romans in the lives of specifically Martin Luther and John Wesley. And so that's my prayer for us, that we would learn about the solid foundation that we have in Christ and the depths of the gospel that we want our lives to be all about. Um, I ran across some quotes about the book of Romans that I thought would be worth excuse me, passing on to you. You've got them on your outline. Uh, The epistle to the Romans is the most important document of the New Testament, the most complete statement of Paul's gospel from F.F. Bruce. 
John MacArthur wrote, the book of Romans is the New Testament's most systematic and thorough exposition of the gospel. Uh, William Barclay, a historical commentator, wrote the epistle to the Romans is the grandest of all Paul's letters. It is the most profound of all the books of the New Testament and the most comprehensive in its treatment of the great themes of the Christian faith. Jerry Bridges, a modern writer, wrote, the letter to the Romans is the most systematic and logical explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ found anywhere in the New Testament. Uh, Charles Hodge, a theologian, said the epistle to the Romans is the keystone of the Christian faith and the one on which the whole structure rests. And John Calvin, uh, of course, from the Reformation time from France, said the epistle to the Romans is the greatest document of the Christian faith and the most sublime production of Paul's genius. And John Bunyan is another name I'm sure you've heard. He was in prison for his faith when he read through the book of Romans that it inspired him to write Pilgrim's Progress, uh, one of the first novels ever written. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, I highly encourage you to read that. Uh, he wrote it in very old English, but you can buy it in modern English, and it really is a, a, a classic of the Christian faith. So I think it's pretty exciting that we can read and study uh, the same letter that inspired these men to come to faith in Christ and many others, and we have the same Holy Spirit uh, to live those out as they did. And so that uh, excites me as we come to the book of Romans. So again, uh, a prayer for revival in our hearts, revival in our church through that, and that the message grips us like it gripped these men and women and many others. Um, in the opening verses, the Apostle Paul introduces himself to the believers. Uh, some of them he knew because he greets them by name in the last chapter of the book. But there were many others that he did not know. Um, Paul's introduction is longer than most introductions in his other letters and more theological. Um, but he really wants the Roman believers to get what he is telling them. And he knows how important it is. And he knows that he, how, how badly he wants them to hear, but not just hear it, but accept it and, and be able to live it out. Um, it's important for us to understand biblically how to think about ourselves, uh, how God thinks about us. Uh, I ran across a, a letter written by a second grader in Tennessee who gave this letter to her teacher. And the, the little essay was entitled, My Face. And it read this, my face has two brown eyes, it has a nose and two cheeks, and two ears and a mouth. I like my face. I'm glad my face is just like it is. It's not bad, it's not good, but it's just right. And I think that's the way we need to think of ourselves before God. Uh, the Apostle Paul has a godly and healthy view of himself, and he wants that to be true of the Romans, and I want that to be true of us as we go through this book. God wants that to be true of us. So if you take your Bible and uh, look at Romans chapter 1, we'll begin reading at verse 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God 
the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him we receive grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. So Paul sets the tone for this book at the very beginning by mentioning grace uh, twice. Uh, From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, he said that's where it comes from. Um, By grace through faith is how we're reconciled to God. Grace is a gift of God. It's a source of hope. It's our source of forgiveness. It's the key to seeing genuine transformation in our lives. Um, As we look at verses one through seven, this section um, that, that Paul writes, we see uh, what's set out really as almost a summary of the rest of the book um, because we see in it God's grace in Christ. That's what the gospel is all about. The first question that's answered is, <clears throat> who did Paul say that he was? So the Christians in Rome knew Paul uh, by his reputation. He was known as the Christian leader among the Gentiles. Uh, when he identified himself, he could have said many different things. He could have talked about his educational background. He trained under Gamaliel. He was the premier rabbi to train under. Uh, And that educational background was pretty unique. He could have talked about being a Roman citizen. Not everyone in Rome was a citizen of Rome, so that was a big deal. Uh, He could have talked about his own personal encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, but that's not what he focused on. Instead, he begins by saying that he is a servant of Christ Jesus. Literally a bondservant. That's what Paul considered his most impressive credential, is being a servant. And you've got this on your outline. The Greek word for bondservant is doulos and means one who is subject to the rule of another. The Greeks and the Romans despised servants, despised slaves. Uh, To be a slave to someone meant the loss of freedom. Uh, And to lose one's freedom was to lose one's dignity. So no one wanted the title of doulos unless it was Paul talking about being a slave of Christ Jesus. Uh, And so again, on your outline, by calling himself a bondservant, Paul does put himself in quite a group of other heroes of the faith. who also called themselves God's servants. Abraham, Moses, Joshua, David, Isaiah. You can look up those references on your own. I I hope you will and see how they referred to themselves as servants. And so at the root of who Paul said he was, was a slave of Christ Jesus. No matter what you do, whether you're a student or a teacher or a blue-collar worker or a a CEO of a company, whatever you do, if, if you want to be used by God in the kingdom, 
for his kingdom to build his kingdom. You have to be a servant. Um, and that's on your outline. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And he defined that. He, he laid it out to give his life as a ransom for many. I heard someone say one time that, uh, that being a servant begins when gratitude ends. We all like to be known as a servant. But we like for people to appreciate that we're a servant. Uh, I, I heard when we were training to be missionaries, uh, the first week we were training, there was a man who said, you know how much of a servant you are by the way you respond when someone treats you like one. We all want to be a servant. We don't want to be treated as a servant. But that's what Jesus said. That's what Jesus did. That's who he was, that's who Paul was. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called next to be an apostle. An apostle in secular Greek was someone who was sent to accomplish a task. You have that on the outline uh, on behalf of the one sending. So who was it that sent Paul? Well, for Paul, it was more than being sent. It was a, it was a calling. Uh, and, and this was the basis of Paul's authority. It, it was not his education. It was not his personality. But the same one he was a servant of. He wanted, it was all about Jesus, who was the one who called him and gave him the authority of being an apostle. And then verse one continues and says that he was, Paul was set apart for the gospel of God. Uh, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The idea to set apart is to separate or to reserve and what Paul was basically saying is this, for the better part of my adult life, I was in a world of being a religious Pharisee and I could not escape that world until I was on the way to Damascus to kill some of the followers of the Lord Jesus. And he met me on that road. And that is by the grace of God what got Paul out of that of that small enclosed circle of being uh, all about religion and not about faith in Christ. And then Jesus set him apart to carry that gospel to the world. When things got tough for Paul, and they did get tough for the apostle Paul, um, he knew and he could fall back on the, on the fact that God had appointed him. Paul knew he'd been called to be an apostle. He was set apart to take the good news to people who had never heard it before. He says that in Romans 15, 20. I'm, I'm called to go and take the gospel to people who have not yet had the opportunity to hear it. That's what motivates our missionaries to go. They go to places where people have not been able to hear the gospel. Uh, again, on your outline, the most important word in Romans 1 and this is Paul's letter to the Romans is the word gospel. It occurs six times in chapter one. And it's important because it's the theme of his letter. The gospel is that God judges sin. And yet at the same time, he pours out his grace on us, even though we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. And so, again, on your outline, Romans was written to make the great gospel of God more widely known. That's why Paul wrote it. He wanted the Romans to understand the gospel. 
It was Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones in his commentary of Romans uh, that said that if we only understand the definition of grace, we don't really appreciate the good, how good the good news of grace really is. And one of the ways that Lloyd-Jones says that you need to, to understand that is to contrast Christianity next to any of the world's other major religions, which are all about self-help and works-based salvation. Uh, any other religion will tell you how you can get to God, but they won't get you to God. They'll tell you what you need to do to be religious, what you need to do to attain heaven, but they don't give the way. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I'm the way you get to heaven. And so what the gospel tells us is that God is actually there, that, that God cares, that he has made a way for us to have fellowship with him at the same time, holding us accountable for what we do. And it tells us, the gospel tells us that he's reached out to us in love through the work of Jesus. You know, there was um, one author who wrote this. He said, because of the unparalleled power of the gospel of God's grace, it's not something the biblical writers expect us to learn and then just leave behind. It contains everything necessary for success in the Christian life. And the author continues, the gospel is not just the milk that nourishes us until we are mature enough for the meat. The gospel is the meat and the dessert too for that matter. The gospel is more than just a 101 introductory class to Christianity. It's the entire campus on which the classes are held. The gospel is more than just the diving board to get into Christianity, it's the whole pool. The way you grow in Christ is the way you began in Christ. Paul says it in Colossians uh, chapter two, verse six, that we, we came to him by faith and we continue to grow in him by faith. So we grow in the finished work of Christ and, the, and the, based on the, on the work of, of him that we know it's, it's there because of the empty tomb. To progress is always to begin again. It's always to go back to the foundation of the gospel. That's what Paul's saying in Romans. Peter says the gospel is so profound that angels long to look into it. They stand around the throne of God every day just to catch a glimpse of the gospel. And that leads us to the second question. What did Paul say that he did? In verses two to four, the apostle Paul saw his preaching as an extension of the Old Testament message. Paul, in verse one, at the end of verse one, is set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was a descendant of David. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What scriptures is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures. And so the Old Testament answers many questions about the Messiah. Some of them you have on your outline. Who would Jesus' mother be? A virgin. Of what house was he to be? Of David. Where would he be born? Bethlehem. What name would be given him? Emmanuel. What death would be his? The, the cross. Piercing the body without breaking his bones. 
And where would it be, where would it happen at Jerusalem, outside the city? And as Paul's task was rooted, if you go back to the first promise of the Messiah in Genesis 3.15, it's rooted in the, in the garden, it's rooted in the patriarchs, it's rooted in the prophets. When Paul is explaining the scriptures, he's explaining the Old Testament to the people in Rome, to wherever he taught. And then according to verses three and four, Paul's task was to preach that Jesus was both man and God. Look at verse three, as his, to his earthly life, or in other words, his human nature, Jesus was a descendant of David. And then it goes on in verse four, and it says he was God, and through the spirit of his, or his spirit of holiness, he was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. You know, there was apparently a discussion one time with a, a man named Monsieur Lepeau, and uh, another Frenchman whose name was Charles Maurice de Talleyrand Perigot. And, and basically he's known as Talleyrand. And they were, Talleyrand was the Minister of Foreign Affairs. He was also trained in religion. And Monsieur Lepeau had come to him and said, you know, I, I've started a new religion that's, that's better than Christianity but it's just not taking off. So could you give me some ideas as to how I could get this religion moving? And Talleyrand famously replied to Monsieur Lepeau, he said, to ensure your success of your new religion, all you have to do is get yourself crucified and rise from the dead on the third day. (laughs) That'll work. Um, That is indeed what sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Uh, We don't have uh, a leader of our religion who is dead. We have a leader of our religion who is alive in Jesus. The resurrection confirmed it with power. Christ's perfect life came from God because he was God the Son. Uh, Paul wanted the Romans to know that and to know that his task of sharing the good news was to preach Jesus in accord with the Old Testament scriptures. And that was, it was about the resurrection of the divine human Jesus, our savior. And so Paul's life and his mission uh, come together. He's appointed by God. He's divinely set apart to do the work of God. He's above all a servant and his message is confirmed by the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 17. If, if the resurrection didn't happen, your faith is in vain. And this is the reality of the vision that drove Paul to, to such amazing heights of service, to do what he did for the kingdom of God. There are a lot of false gospels out there and, and people, that, of, of people that do not believe Jesus is the son of God. They'll say that he's God the son. You can even, when we say Jesus is the son of God, we mean that he is God the son. And so when when you are talking with somebody, they might respond by saying, well, yeah, I believe that he's the son of God, but they mean that he is less than God. So I've talked to people who are, are in Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or in other cults that are a deviation from orthodoxy. And I'll ask them that question, do you believe that Jesus is God the son? And they have to say no. So sometimes they'll respond and they'll say, oh, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. But that's not what they mean. They don't mean that he's God the son. 
So we have to be clear about that in our thinking and in the way we communicate that. And so we've seen Paul's view of himself. We've seen his view of his mission. And now comes the question, number three on the outline, how does Paul perceive his commission? Paul writes in verse five, through him we received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. God's grace in its broadest sense is about forgiveness, the forgiveness we have because of the cross. It's about salvation. Uh, Practically, it's about guidance uh, and, and how God guides us through his word and the power to serve. I love what Henrietta Mears says, a great um, woman of God who wrote the book, What the Bible is All About, a great little Bible study book if you've never used that or gone through it. She said the Christian life is not uh, difficult to live. It is impossible to live. And that's why God has given us his Holy Spirit to give us the power to live the Christian life. So he doesn't just give us all these commands and say good luck to us. He gives us these commands and then he says, now I've given you the power of the Holy Spirit living inside of you to to live these commands out. And so Paul says that, that the grace of God is infinite. This is on your outline and eternal. It has no beginning and no end. It is truly the foundation for our faith. Grace is always something that Paul gloried in. And, and he, Paul said, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. Whatever your sin is, whatever you think is too much for God to handle, God responds and says, no, my grace is sufficient. There's more grace than your sin. <clears throat> Paul tells the Romans that he wants them to know about himself. He wants them to know he's a servant. They want them to know he's appointed by God, that he's separated out for the gospel, that everything in his life is dominated by the resurrection of Christ. But most of all, and this is again on your outline, he sees all of this and all of his life in terms of God's amazing grace. Do you see yourself through God's grace? As one who is forgiven? as one who no matter how great the sin is that you struggle with, that God's grace is greater than your sin and that you can't earn it, it is a gift of God. Do you see yourself that way? What would our lives be like if we focused on that, on the grace of God, communicating his grace, living under his grace? You know, I think my favorite quote about <clears throat> Paul comes from Billy Graham, who wrote this, and it's on your outline. Paul was a man of deep, passionate conviction. His letters show him to be a man of strong, unwavering faith and an unshakable belief in the truth of the gospel. That's what I want us to be. Us to be unwavering, strong in our faith <clears throat> and unshakable in our belief of the truth of the gospel. And then the passage ends with the answer to this question, what should be our view of ourselves? Paul closes this introduction with how the Romans ought to be thinking of themselves, and that sure applies to us, and how we ought to be thinking of ourselves as well. So verse six, and you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, and to all in Rome who are loved by God, 
and called to be his holy people, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. These last two verses teach us three very important truths that Paul sees as foundational for understanding this New Testament letter. Excuse me, the first one is that we are loved by God. I think it's significant here that Paul doesn't focus on our love for God, but on God's love for us. God's love for the believer. I don't know when I first heard this, but I was a new Christian, and um, I was, one of the first verses I'd memorized, like many of you, was John 3.16, and someone shared this with me. It's on your outline. Uh, It's John 3.16. It's about being the greatest for God, the greatest lover, so loved, the greatest degree, the world, the greatest company that he gave, the greatest act, his only begotten son, the greatest gift, that whosoever, that's the greatest opportunity, believes the greatest attraction, but believes the greatest simplicity, in him the greatest attraction, should not perish, the greatest promise, but the greatest difference, have, that's the greatest certainty, everlasting life, that's the greatest possession. We are loved by God, and he loves us with an everlasting love, he says in Jeremiah 31. Like someone said, we should get used to this truth, but we should never get over it. The second truth is in in verse seven, is that we are called to be God's holy people. We aren't called because we're holy. We're declared by God to be holy when we put our faith in Christ because he has called us. The responsibility then to make disciples falls on us, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to everyone, and and to call people to be God's holy people. Every member of Christ's body is charged with the same mission, to go into all the world and make disciples. We're to seek those who have not heard the good news, and then become the means by which they come to faith and obedience in Christ. And then finally, we're recipients of grace and peace. At the end of verse seven, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And those two go together because when God's grace comes on you, it takes away the consequence of our sin and your life is flooded with a supernatural peace. If you know Christ, you know what I'm talking about. And Paul's going to delve into the theological depths and the significance of grace in this letter. Uh, Paul had this understanding of, of who he was in Christ that he wanted to communicate to the Romans. And it was also, that's also got to be true of us and why we're studying this great book. You know the hymn Amazing Grace? We all know it. We've sung it. We love that hymn. One of the lines says, It was grace that taught my heart to fear. John Newton, uh, the man who wrote that, was a slave trader. And he lived a terrible life, but he found grace. And he was able to say, it was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. So what does that mean? 
It means that God's grace can inspire in us a sense of reverence and awe for God that's appropriate. I think grace, if grace could speak, grace would say this, it's important for you to pay attention to the uneasiness you have about not feeling good enough. You can't relieve yourself by by your accomplishments. You can't relieve yourself of of a feeling of not having peace by, by going to church, by a stronger will, by whatever it might be, your work, success in your work, going to the gym, whatever it is. You need God. You need Christ in your life. You need to be saved from what sin has done and is doing to your soul. Sin has messed us up as individuals. It's ruined our relationship with the world. It's ruined our relationship with God. I heard about a a couple with a daughter named Shauna. And Shauna was a strong-willed little girl. She was about four years old and she was uh, trying to ride her tricycle where she was not allowed to ride. And her mother one day had had enough and came outside frustrated with Shauna and said, all right, Shauna, look, here's a tree. Here's the edge of our driveway. Here's our sidewalk. You may ride your tricycle between the tree and the driveway, but you cannot take it beyond that. If you take it beyond those boundaries, I will punish you. It will not be pretty. I'm going back in the house right now and we have a big picture window and I will be watching you. And if you ride beyond those boundaries, you're gonna have to come inside and you'll be in big trouble. And Shauna was not intimidated and she stuck her little hip out and pointed to it and said, well, you better spank me now because I've got places to go. Well, that's Shauna, but you know something? That's also our hearts. We are rebellious against God. We're corrupt. Uh, on our own, we will never turn to God. I mean, here's the problem. The corruption is universal because it's affecting every single person, just like aging does. You know, the <clears throat> French word for Aging is literally falling apart. It takes courage to grow old and to fall apart. We become accustomed to that. We become accustomed to injustice. We become accustomed to apathy. We become accustomed to violence and poverty and abuse because they exist in all of us. But God never gets used to it. It's never okay with him. We become accustomed to these things, but we shouldn't become accustomed to them. Paul writes in Romans 3, there is no one righteous. No, not one. No one who understands. There is no one who seeks God on their own. God has to draw them to himself. So God's standard is sinless purity. That's the essence of his very nature. 
He is not severe. He is not unreasonable. The only conditions under which creation can flourish are justice and love and peace, shalom kind of peace. And in God's eyes, in a morally sane vision, sin is the horror of our souls. So, you know, we, we all sin as much as we love Jesus. We live in this world. I'm going to mention some words here. You tell me if you can identify with any of these. Prideful. Judgmental. Apathetic. Greedy. Envious. Unfaithful. Cowardly, stubborn, joyless, lustful, complaining. According to grace, the path to spiritual and moral clarity starts with this recognition to say, God, I have neglected your ways. I have ignored you and and your way of life. I have defied you and your ways. There is something wrong. There's something broken in me, and I can't fix it. And it's sin. And I recognize that that's why you sent Jesus, because where sin abounds, and it abounds in my heart, Grace abounds all the more. And so God is calling you to live in the gospel of his grace every day. And that's the call of the book of Romans. That's the call to us that I'm looking forward to focusing on this next year with you. Let's pray together. So as our heads are bowed, I just ask you this question. Have you offered yourself, have you given yourself to the God of grace who gives grace to cover all your sins? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for these truths. We're overwhelmed by how good the good news is. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your grace in our lives, for your forgiveness for your salvation, for your guidance, for the power to serve that all happens by your grace. Thank you for your grace and peace that floods our lives. Father, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't know you personally, I know they're here because you're drawing them to yourself. May they respond right now in faith. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, So this is from the end of Romans, from the Apostle Paul. He writes, uh, Now to him who is able to strengthen you in in the faith, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus, the Anointed One. Amen. So be it. Well, please take the opportunity to uh, greet the people next to you, wish them a happy new year, and thank them for being here this morning. God bless.